Well, so good to be with all of you this weekend as we continue our journey through the extraordinary reality that God has revealed to us in His Word. Uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but um, do any of you ever feel like you are the only person on the road that knows what they're doing? Have you ever felt that way? Like you're driving along and you're like, oh my goodness. Nobody knows how to drive. I mean, there's certain seasons in Florida where it's more prevalent than others, right? Where you're just like, are you kidding me? I mean, this is a road. How did they give you a driver's license? I feel that way every day, all the time. It's a funny thing when you feel that way because I've come to realize that it doesn't really matter which category of the equation I'm on in the driving. Somehow I'm always the one that seems to know what I'm doing and the other person's not. Uh, on a occasion, uh, I am leaving my home and I am not in a rush anywhere. I don't have anywhere to be like in 1994, I think there was a time like that, if I remember correctly. Uh, no, it comes around once in a while and, and then you, you, you head out the door, you, you don't have anywhere to be in a rush and so you get in your car and you, you put some music on and uh, you hit the road and, and you're driving down the road and you have that relaxed feel about you and, and so you're just kind of going along. And then some inconsiderate, rude human being who apparently procrastinated and is running behind gets behind you. And, and they, they, don't, they don't quietly linger behind you. They try to incentivize you to go faster. So they, they push themselves right up behind your car and then they weave, you know, the weaving, the weaving back and forth from mirror to mirror so that in case you're looking at one of the other mirrors, you would see there is a very anxious human being behind you and you are driving in a manner that is not worthy of the road. And so you think to yourself in your car, don't you? Do you think to yourself, what a jerk I am. Unbelievable that I would drive this slowly when someone else is clearly in a hurry and they must have a very good reason to be in a hurry. No, no one's ever thought that. And if you have, come see me afterwards because I'd like to meet you. No, you think to yourself, what a rude and dangerous person this is. Now, the majority of the time, I'm not going somewhere quietly. I am loading somewhere between four and eight kids into a vehicle that have to be in multiple places that are going to effectively make me late for multiple things, which will then spiral into a domino effect for my day that will make me late for everything. And so the only spaces that I have to make up time is when I'm in a moving vehicle, okay? And so I calculate uh, the, the speed limit. There's a posted speed limit, and then there's a certain amount by which you can exceed that where you think that the, the forces that be will show grace, right? And so I extend myself to that point because each of those extra miles per hour equates to a few extra seconds and those throughout the day equate to minutes and minutes throughout the day make the difference between being late or being on time and I'm already late and so you're driving and then you end up on Avalon Road or on Hartwood Marsh and it's a single lane road and there's some human that's driving along and they think it is totally appropriate to drive, wait for it, under the posted speed limit. I'm like, look, speed limit, I can still kind of understand. You're a legalist, you don't understand the freedom you have in the gospel and in Christ, and so you are traveling. But under the speed limit, there is nothing human about that that makes any sense, right? 
And so you're behind them. And then I'm usually in the Sprinter, which is a giant van. And so I won't really ride their bumper, depending on how you categorize it. I'll just move forward enough uh, to let them know that I am definitely there. And then I don't have to weave because my vehicle's twice as wide as yours. So it doesn't matter what mirror you're looking in, you're going to see the sprinter. And then if that doesn't incentivize enough, I might just go, you know, it seems a little dark out. I'm going to turn my lights on. <laughs> not, not, to, not to like let you know I'm here or anything, but just because, you know, it's dark. Um, and then if if that doesn't work, then I go on to think about uh, what it means to be a human like you and how inconsiderate that must, what it feels like to be that inconsiderate of people like me. See, in driving, it's a silly example, but it is a great example of how we human beings tend to function in a space that says that my opinion, my experience, my reality always overrides yours. That's kind of how we function. We don't even think about it, it just happens. You can do it in driving and traffic, that's easy one. I'll give you another example. Let's do this one as an example. Let's take politics for example. So for, you're like, like, is he really gonna do it? Because you see, the second I say that, and I'm like, let's talk politics. I'm gonna lay out for you who I think we ought to. And then you're like, no, please. Because the second you post something about that online, you have in, in essentially created a space where 50% of the population is going to think you are out of your mind. And the other 50% is going to think that the 50% that think you're out of your mind are out of their minds. And so we are going to function in that space, aren't we? The bottom line is at the end of the day, my opinion, my experience, my reality trumps yours. And that's not a political statement. That's just an actual word you can use in an actual sentence that happens to be the last name of a political candidate that we're not going to talk about right now. So uh, the, the reality is that in that space, that's how we function. We have a history, an experience, uh, a reality, and our reality measures how we see the world. Okay? So Paul is writing this letter of Romans to the church in Rome. And as he writes this letter, he is writing into an environment with a tangible reality of two groups of people that come from extremely different backgrounds with extremely different cultural realities have come together into this place that they are unified under the banner of Christ, right? So you, you have the Jewish world that has their own background and you have the Gentile or Greek Roman world that has their background and they are now in the same space and Paul is riding into that space. Remember that the Jewish people from a cultural background standpoint uh, understand the world in two groups. Here are the two groups, okay? They are the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, the recipients of God's promise and God's future rescue and then they are the pagans, the Gentiles, the rest of the planet, right? They are the two groups of people, the only two groups, the Jews and the rest of the planet, pagans. And then you have in the church, the Greeks, the Roman Greek Gentiles, and to them, they are two groups of people in the world, okay? They are the Greeks and the Romans. They are civilized, educated. They are thinkers. They are strategists. They function in systems and processes that make the world work. And then they are the barbarians. And that was it, those were the two categories. The Greeks and Romans, the civilized world, and the barbarians. 
The barbarians, that, that actual word is an onomatopoeia. That's like, uh, they, they literally didn't have a word for these people. And so they just went, the blah, blah. Like they, they can't even talk. And then eventually the word barbarian came to be. The people that can't even talk right. So the Jewish people fell into what category as far as the Greeks and Romans were concerned? Barbarians, right? And the Romans and Greeks fell into what category as far as the Jews were concerned? Pagans, right? So now listen, listen. The pagans are hanging out with the Jewish people and the barbarians are hanging out with the Greeks in the church. And Paul is writing to that. So do you see why that's complicated? Because within the church, we have this view that whatever our reality is, it overrides your reality. It tells us about you. But the truth is, this isn't just true in the church. I think a lot of times the church gets a bad rap, like we're judgmental, and then the rest of the world is tolerant, and, and just like, yay. But, but, but the truth is, that's not actually a truth. Yes, the church can be very judgmental, don't get me wrong, but so can the world. In fact, not so can the world, the world is equally judgmental just about the things that matter to them, just like we are about the things that matter to us, right? And so it's not a matter of tolerance versus judgment, it's a matter of all of us judging one another all the time. And so in Paul's time, this was also true in the world that Paul is writing to. The, the view that people had of this I'm better because I'm living a life that is good versus those that are bad didn't just exist inside the church. Now remember, when Paul starts this letter, initially he talks about the reality of the gospel colliding with the Jews and the Greeks and how God uses both of those backgrounds to demonstrate his faithfulness to his people and the reality that he's gonna make all things new, right? So we, we covered that ground. And then God uh, uses Paul to write about a group of people that are gonna be the recipients of God's wrath. And he calls this group of people the evildoers, Right? the people that do evil things. And we read in Romans chapter one, starting in verse 18, all about the evildoers, okay? Now, when Paul was doing that, it would not just have been the people in the church in Rome that would have been amening that section of scripture. It would have been anyone that had taken a high moral ground. Are you with me? It's not just the church that tries to behave. A lot of times, the, church has mul uh, the, the world has multiple sections of people that are gonna take a high moral ground. And so what Paul does is, in chapter one, he says, guys, there's a group of people that are the recipients of God's wrath, and that is the group of people that are evildoers. And he says in that passage, really, in many ways, we all have done things. But left to ourselves, this group of people emerge. And then Romans uh, 26 through the end of Romans chapter one is this like list of horror, right? And when that list is being preached, if you're a moralist, if you're a, a person of high moral standards, what will you be doing as Paul says, these evildoers will receive their due judgment. You'll be amening, right? Amen, amen. The holy groan, mm-hmm, 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 right? So the church will certainly be doing that, but who else will be doing that? In Paul's time, there would have been two groups of people that Paul was very familiar with that also would have been holy groaning all the way through chapter one of Romans. It was 
the Greek moralists and it was the Jewish legalists, okay? So the Jewish people that had not received the gospel and were still living under the system of the law, recognizing that by following the law, they will entice God's mercy and grace and they will therefore be the faithful people of God that God will then be faithful to. So that was the normal Jewish system. And then there were the Greek moralists and the Greek moralists were a group of people in Rome specifically that understood that if you were to civilize a person, if you were to give a person the structure to live within, and you were to say, we're going to establish laws, we're going to establish education, we're going to establish a, a, a system of, of, of e- economics and a system of politics where there is rule, and within that rule, we then have a hierarchy, and we all function within that, that that will lead to a great society of people people working together in a, in a way that is, that is helpful to humanity, right? And that you can't just do whatever you want. You can't just feel whatever you want and go nuts. The Greek moralist would say, no, 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 you can't do that. Now, now we can relate deeply to that group of people, right? Because if we're honest, if we're honest, when you really sit down and you think about your children, right? And you think, what is going to give your children a great life? Like, just a good good life. What are the most important things your children need? Come on now. A good education and a good job after going to a good college so that they can have that good job, so they can have money, so that they are not poor and can't afford a house. And then if they have that, they get a good spouse and they have some good kids and they are a law-abiding citizen with good Manners, right? So what do we spend our entire life doing? We're going to teach you good manners, get you a good education, and teach you to abide by the law. And if you do that, you will be fine. Well, there's some truth to that. That will be helpful. But that is not the ultimate end to their salvation, is it? But a Greek moralist, like a good American, would have said, yep, that, that's what makes a good citizen, a good person. So what Paul's going to do right now is, after coming out of chapter 1, where he said evildoers will be the recipients of God's wrath, he is now going to do something absolutely wondrous to continue to expand the beautiful theology of the gospel so that we will understand what this gospel is that has been revealed to us, what it says about who we are, what it says about who God is, and what it says about our relationship with God, okay? But what he's going to do in order to demonstrate that the truths of the gospel are not just for the people within the church, but also for the whole world, he is now in chapter 2 going to take a step back and he's going to have a side conversation with a group of people, some of whom may be in the church, but most of whom are not. And he's going to say to the church who is listening to the letter, I'm going to let you listen in to a side conversation I'm having with a group of people out there so that you can understand something about the gospel that you need to understand if you're going to understand the magnitude of God's grace and mercy. That was a lot to swallow. So let me show you what I mean, okay? Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's page 1040. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 1, 1040 in the Bibles we're using. So you remember in Romans chapter 1, starting in 18 and then going all the way through to the end of chapter 1, and specifically verse 28 through 32, the incredible list of the evildoers, and you're getting all the amens, right? All the amens from who? From the church, yes, but also from the Greek moralists, also from the Jewish legalists. Anyone who has a general moral standard by which they function, this is the group of people he's talking to, okay? And then he says this, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So that's where he's just told us two things. In that sentence, one, by using the word, oh man, he's telling us I'm no longer speaking specifically to the church in Rome, to the people in the church. I'm now speaking to whom? To the larger dynamic of humanity, saying to you out there, oh man, and now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create a category of the oh man. I'm not speaking to all humans. I'm speaking to a category of humans. Here it is. To you out there, oh man, who Judges, to you, you have no excuse. You have nothing to bring to the table to say, oh my gosh, those evildoers, unbelievable. They're so deserving of wrath. Thankfully, I'm not. You have no excuse. Why not? Take a look. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now that's an odd thing to say, because think about what Paul's just done. He's now talking to the Greek moralists and to the Jewish legalists who by definition have created a system by which they live to create moral high ground so that they can do what is good and right, and he's just said to them, you do the same things that the evildoers do, but the question is, do they? Do they do the same things that the evildoers do? Because by definition, they don't think they do, right? because then they wouldn't have a moral high ground and they wouldn't be judges. If they actually thought they were evildoers, they'd go, no, 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 I'm an evildoer, but thankfully I'm not an evildoer. Why? Because the Greek guy says the Roman system, the democratic system of law and rightness has created a space for me to take moral high ground and to live as a good citizen. And the Jewish person has said, God gave me the law of God, which has taught me how to live rightly, and I live by the law, unlike the evildoers, so I am good. So when Paul says, you condemn yourselves because the second you judge others, you actually demonstrate that you do the same things, what would they have said next? No, Paul, that's not true. We don't do those things. Now, thankfully, What makes this next paragraph so fascinating is that Paul has had a ton of time to interact with who? Both Jewish legalists and Greek moralists. Why? Because Paul is not on his first missionary journey here. He didn't just come off the road to Damascus, did he? Remember, Paul has been in Galatia and Lystra on his first missionary journey. And what did he deal with in Galatia and Lystra? He dealt with the Judaizers who brought back the Jewish legalism into the gospel. And he wrote the book of Galatians going, you guys have missed it. And he was in Galatia several more times dealing with those people. So does Paul understand what kind of opposition, what kind of questioning, what kind of uh, things he's going to get from the Jewish legalist? 
Yes, he does. He's had thousands of hours of discussion with people like this. And then where did he go on his second missionary journey? Well, he went right across north of Asia Minor, south of Bithynia, went across the Aegean Sea, went into Macedonia, which is Roman and Greek territory. He was in Philippi, he was in Thessalonica, he was in Berea, he was in Athens, uh, he was in uh, Corinth. And all of those cities are filled with the Greek moralists, the Roman Empire. And so even remember in Athens when he was there and he was dialoguing in the, in the courtyard with the philosophers and he was like, now let's talk about your gods. Who's the unknown God? And he brought that whole thing in. Paul is absolutely familiar with how to dialogue with Greek moralists and with Jewish legalists. And so don't think of this paragraph as much as a paragraph in a letter, as much as a cup of coffee. And Paul is allowing us, as he is the church in Rome, to listen into the cup of coffee. And you can almost hear the voice on the other side. You know what? If you judge, you've just condemned yourself because you do the same things. Uh, no, I, I, I don't do the same things. Now Paul goes, okay, I, I thought you would say that, so let's follow this logical argument and see how I show you that you really do the same things. Take a look, verse two. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Yep, we've all agreed on that, chapter one. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. And so now you're sitting there going, Paul, again, I, I don't think I do the same things as the evildoers do. That list that you wrote in chapter one, verse 26 and on, I do not do those things, okay? Now watch what he's gonna do. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, he's using something the Jews would have been very familiar with, but the Gentiles, the Greeks, would have also been familiar with in the way that they functioned with their pagan gods. Here's the deal, he's saying this. Hold on a second. Let me, let me guess. What you're counting on is God's kindness toward you because you have taken the moral ground. So essentially, here's what Paul's saying. You're counting on the fact that God grades on a scale, aren't you? That's what you're doing. You're saying, I may not have done everything just right, but I sure didn't do it as badly as the evildoer, right? So when it comes down to it, if it were just me, and it would just the law or just the system of rightness might be a bit of a tough sell. But all I have to do is this. God, I mean, I, I get that I you know, blew it here on Tuesday and maybe that one Thursday a couple weeks ago, but malice, strife, murder, death, all those things on the list in 118, didn't do any of those. So when you compare me to the evildoers, I'm in solid shape. And God's kindness will be affected toward me because I am not nearly as bad as the rest of humanity. So he's saying, is that what you're counting on? Is, is that what you're hoping for? Because I have some news for you, Paul says. God's kindness toward you, his forbearance with your previous mistakes, because this is the logic. I've done things in the past that weren't great and God didn't like strike me dead, right? So God's been patient with me. He's quietly working with me. It's been awesome because in general terms, my heart is for him. And so my stuff, you know, he tolerates it. So that's what you're counting on. Don't you realize that God's kindness 
was never meant as a means to excuse your failures, your sins, your mess up. It was meant to give you the space to conclude that God is merciful despite your sin so that you would repent and come to him and say, oh my goodness, I need you. God's kindness, his patience with us is not to excuse or not demonstrating that he likes you better than the other person he didn't seem to not punish. It means he's patiently waiting for you to repent. But verse five, look, because you're Hard and impertinent heart, because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul just says this to the moralist, whether it's the Greek moralist or the Jewish legalist, he's saying this, to all of you, O man, who think your behavior is better than the evildoer, and so therefore you are okay with God, okay? For all of you, here's the deal. While you think you are storing up righteousness, you are actually storing up wrath. That's a crazy, scary thing to say. Did you hear what he just said? You actually think you're bringing to the table one righteous thing after the next, and the things that aren't righteous because they're little, you're like, oh, let's, that one's okay, that, this one's better, that one. you're like sorting through. Here's all my righteous stuff, you're grading on a scale, I got more of that than I do of this, so I'm good. The evildoer, oh my goodness, his scale on this side is giant. No wonder God's wrath is for him. He's saying this, you think you're storing up righteousness for yourself? You, you missed the point. You are storing up wrath. You are literally continuing in a life that is adding to wrath. Why is Paul saying that? Because what we understand as we will continue through Romans and as we understand about the gospel is that when we come to the table with our righteousness, what we have to bring to the table is only righteousness. So the judgment doesn't function this way. If I bring more righteousness than unrighteousness, then I scale up and I'm okay. It's this, every time you don't bring righteousness, you add to the, the reality that you are a deserving recipient of wrath. So Paul says, you are building up wrath. That's not good. He, he's not done. Take a look at this. Now remember, he's continuing this, this, this argument because people are going, hold on, hold on, what do you mean? Verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he will be, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So here's what Paul just said. He said, what we have to understand as people is that God judges us by our works. He judges us by our works. We bring our words, our actions, our thoughts to the table, and he looks at them, and if they were for the glory and honor of God, with our eyes fixed on the eternal realities that are ours, 
setting our minds on things above and living each moment in our lives as it matters to eternity and not to the temporal life, that it is not self-seeking, but it is, it is for the sake of Christ. If that's how we live and that's what our works brought to the table demonstrate, then what are we the recipients of? Eternal life and, and glory and wonder with Christ. There it is. And if that is not what we bring to the table, if it's self-seeking and, and, and we've done evil things, then we will not be recipients of that. We'll be recipients of wrath. Now, many of you here who know the gospel and understand the things, you're confused now, aren't you? Because you grew up thinking that God doesn't judge us by our works. He judges us by our faith, right? That it's not works that set us free, that it's faith that sets us free. And now here I am reading out of the Bible that Paul says straight up, no, 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 no. It's your works. That's what you're going to be judged by. So just so you know, just so we're clear, your works, your righteousness, that's what you're going to be judged by. That's what I'm going to be judged by. That's what Paul's trying to say. Now you might be saying, I think I just heard heresy. I'm not sure. Can I stay? Hold on. Take a deep breath. We're not done yet. Paul is trying to show us something, something very important about what we need to understand about the gospel, okay? So Paul says, if you do this rightly, you receive eternal life, but if you don't, then you don't. Does this remind you of anything that Jesus might have done at a certain point? It, it does me. See, Jesus was on this planet, and, and one of the, the guys that was sort of a leader in the, in the pharisaical movement, he came to Jesus, and he's like, Rabbi, listen, you're awesome. You're clearly a fantastic teacher, really gifted, and you may even be the Messiah. We're not really sure yet, but I have a question for you. And so Jesus goes, sure, what's up? And he goes, listen, tell me how you think as a rabbi we receive eternal life. Now, this was a very typical thing for two rabbis to do to each other. I have an opinion of how you do it. I'd like to hear your opinion. Then we can argue about our opinions and we'll both learn something. And so he goes, what, what's, what's, your, what's your take on it? How do, we, how do we get eternal life? So Jesus goes, well, what's your take on it? And he goes, well, I mean, the scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, essentially. Do those things and, and you will have eternal life. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. That's like works. You don't, you, you know, you're not going to be judged. No, no, no. No, Jesus actually goes like this. Yeah, that's good. I totally agree. Go do that and you will have eternal life. See, even Jesus said, what are we going to be judged by? Our works. That's what we bring to the table. Our works and we're going to be judged by them. And then, of course, the guy that's chatting with Jesus, I love it. He's like, I mean, theoretically, if I didn't do that well, is there any other opportunity for eternal life? See, what he was already doing was going, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength every day. Love your neighbor as yourself. Never be self-seeking. Never do anything for yourself. Always considering Christ. Always considering the kingdom. Always having your eyes fixed on eternity. Always for the honor and glory of God. If I by accident didn't do that, any chance I still get eternal life? And the answer is, well, no, because your works are deserving of what? The wrath of God. So what have I got then? Mm, let's, let's move on. Okay, so we are going to be judged by our works. And here's the key. 
to understanding that we're going to be judged by our works. Verse 11. For God shows no partiality. I want you to know something. This is what Paul's telling the Greek moralist, the Jewish legalist, and anyone in the church that thinks they have a higher moral ground than other people. Here's what he's saying. When God judges your works, he is going to take nothing else into consideration. He's not going to go, oh, you're Jewish. Well, fantastic. You had the law and it was complicated. I get it in the sacrificial system. So your works were going to grade on a different level than the pagans. Or he's not going to look at the Greek moralist and go, man, you didn't have the law. That's super sad. But you, you know, despite not having the law, you did a fantastic job of setting up an awesome system of really good things. And since you didn't have the law, I'm going to go ahead and grade you on a different scale than the Jewish guy who had the law. He should have known better. No, what, what Paul's saying is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't make any difference. He's going to look straight up at your works and he's going to ask this question. Did you live your life exclusively for the glory of God with your eyes fixed on eternity to see his kingdom expand following the letter of the law or did you not? Were you self-seeking at any point? And if you were, you were in trouble. Look, he expands on it right now. Verse 12, here's what he says. Look, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So if you didn't have the law, that doesn't get you off the hook. You still behave badly. You still didn't do it for God. You're still going to be a child of wrath. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When you and I bring our own works to the table, which is all we have is our works. I can't bring yours. Uh, Bob did it better than me. Can I borrow some of his righteousness? See, we can't do that. You bring you. That's what you got. Here's my stuff. Here's what he's saying. If you come, if you blew it because you didn't have the law, well, you blew it. And if you blew it because you had the law, well, you blew it. So if you blew it at all, at any point in that journey, your works have been storing up what? Wrath, not righteousness. For, verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now that's a super odd sentence, isn't it? You, it's one of those biblical sentences where you're like, can we just skip it? Because it's like, now we're into Gentiles who don't have the law, but they do another law, and if they do it, then they're cool. What is Paul doing here? Paul's about to do something so super fun. Paul will regularly poke at the people that he's talking to to shock them a bit because he needs to shock them. Because like us, when we're not shocked by something, we tend to just be thinking about our own stuff. Even now as I talk, many of you, you're like having your own thoughts. Some of them are about dinner tonight and some of them are about what you're having tomorrow. And then some of them are about what I said and whether or not you agree with it. And some of them are wrestling. And so what Paul will often do is he'll say something relatively shocking to kind of bring you back to the table. And you'll be like, what did you just say? 
So, so this is what Paul's about to do. Remember, he's speaking to the moralists and specifically as one of the categories to the Jewish legalist, the person who believes because they have the law that makes them better suited for God's mercy and glory than the pagans who didn't, who will be the recipients of God's wrath. And now he says this, look, if there was a group of pagans, Gentiles, that didn't have the law like you had the law, but they received clarity on what was good and right, and they lived it out, they lived it out, they would be better off than you, who have the law, but don't live it out, because it's a sequence of things, and you get it right sometimes. That is not how it's going to play. Now, look what he does. Look what he does here. He's going to make it real. Watch this. Oh my goodness, this is so fun. Sorry, I find this stuff fascinating. Look at this. They show, verse 15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What did Paul just do? It's a little complicated in the wording there, but let me tell you essentially what Paul just did. He went to the moralist, the person who has taken their own self-righteousness and brought it to the table and thinks that if they live rightly for long enough, that whoever the judge is, that they will be judged well, right? That's how we humans tend to function. He's saying this, you know the people you thought were pagans that don't have the law? There are some of them that God has now written his law on their hearts. This comes out of a prophecy in, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied that one day God will write his law on the hearts of his people so that it would no longer be a law that is a set of things that you have to fulfill in order to be righteous, but it will be a way that we live. It'll be part of who we are so that it, it becomes an expression of us rather than an expression of weighty rules and regulations, right? So the Jewish people always thought that what God was eventually gonna do was make the law so integral and integrated into their lives that they would no longer have to really study it and look at it, it would just be part of them. But what was Jesus, what was Jeremiah actually talking about? That one day the Messiah would come and he wouldn't damage the law, he wouldn't, he wouldn't abolish the law, he would fulfill it by making it more than it was, by writing it, wait for it, on the hearts of his people so that we are responding to God's love, not trying to earn it through a sequence of events. So he just said this, there's a group of Greeks who never had the law as you have it, but it's now written on their hearts. And when they are judged according to my gospel, they will be judged in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul just did? He gave us a little good news in the middle of a kind of hard space. Okay, here's what he just said to them. There's a group of Greeks that are right with God in a way you're not. Who are these Greeks he's talking about? I'll give you a clue. It rhymes with Christians. Who are these Greeks that God is talking about? Christians, okay? 
It's the people in the church. Remember I told you that chapter two, he stepped out of talking directly to the church and he was talking to mankind as a whole. Oh, you, oh man, the judges. So now as he's having that side conversation, it's almost like he's talking to the Greek moralist and the Jewish legalist and he's saying, there is a group of Greeks that you consider pagans that have come to know Jesus and because they have the laws written on their hearts, which has made them right. So here's what Paul is saying. I am not saying that there is no way to be right with God. I am only saying that if you're going to be right with God in any way through your own righteousness, it's never going to work. Do you see what I just did? That's what Paul just did. If you're bringing your moralistic standards to the table, they will always fail you because you've never gotten it right enough to not be a recipient of the wrath of God. But there is a place, a truth, a reality that when it is written on your hearts, it won't matter. Listen to this now. It won't matter that your righteousness isn't good enough because you won't be bringing your righteousness to the table. Because if you did, the judgment would be clear whether you are an evildoer or whether you are a judge. It's not going to cut it. Now, Paul is going to go on and unpack this for the Jewish people specifically in a beautiful way, but that is for next week. We're going to stop here. Now, you might be going, hold, hold on, hold on. You can't stop here. We have like, nobody makes it. I mean, the evildoers are dead, and the moralists are dead, and the judges are dead, and I'm pretty sure I'm in one of those categories, right? I mean, you are. I just, I'm just going to tell you. You're either morally high ground and judging like the guy in the car going, you stupid driver behind me, stupid driver in front of me. You're either that guy or you're the stupid driver. Either way. You are in one of those categories. That's what I love about chapter one and chapter two is he's pretty much covered all the ground. Are you high moral, low moral, evildoer, judge? It doesn't matter. Whatever you bring to the table ain't gonna cut it. But there is this little group of people that you used to thought were pagans, but they have the law written on their hearts and they're gonna be judged in Christ and they're gonna be fine. And so it's beautiful. What do we take away from this? Right here, together, here we are. What do we walk away with? Because it's kind of tough in Romans, isn't it? Because you're in Romans chapter one and two, and so here's what you've got. People, we all know that our righteousness doesn't cut it. So you guys all leave and you go, thank you, I'm gonna check that box. My righteousness doesn't cut it. But is there more here for us? For those of us that know Christ, what do we walk away with in Romans chapter one and two other than, oh, yes, I remember, my sin is bad, but thankfully Jesus rescued me. Well, could it be in chapter two, that we should be reminded that we shouldn't judge. Because that's where it starts, right? Oh, you who judge, you pour judgment on yourself. Well, that's not really what it is. And I'll tell you why. Because the context is off there. It's not talking to the Christians about being judgmental. That was last week. This week, it's not really saying the issue here is judgmental. Now, should you be judgmental? No, you should work at that. But that's not the context here. What is he trying to show you and I again? Here it is, ready? Two beautiful things. First and foremost, or rather first, not foremost, just first. Here it is, ready? We are all in the same boat. Didn't, didn't sound so extraordinary, didn't it? You guys are like, okay, I got that part. But it's really, really, really good news. And it's not because I'm excited about it. It really is good news. Why? Because you and I live in a world where secretly we do not believe we're all in the same boat. 
We know it because we've heard it, but we secretly don't believe it. Do you know how I know that? Because we are always comparing ourselves to each other. And so even here at Mosaic Church, right? I mean, nobody comes in a suit and tie. Why not? Not because suit and ties are bad, but because you want to fit in, right? So we're all casual. And some of you actually like suits and ties. Maybe you don't, but I'm sure there's someone out there that does, okay? The suffocating realities of a tie and shoes. Um, Some of you do like that, but you don't do it because you want to fit in. If you went to a church with suits and ties, then uh, give it a week or two and you'd be in a suit and tie because you want to fit in. Because what you want to do like me is to be able to say, I I am like you, even though I'm not like you. And so what we do then is this. The stuff that's in me, I'm always afraid that when you finally find out what I really think, how I really act, what I really be like, you're not going to like me anymore. So I, I present parts of it to the table. We see it in subtle ways this way. For example, when somebody says, how are you? And you've had a really bad week with your kids or with your spouse or with a friend or with a coworker, then you, you do one of these, right? We all do it, right? Oh, it's just been a really, really rough week and it's, it's been tough and I'm really discouraged. And then we add this, but God is good, right? Or, but you know what? I, I, I know that God will pull me. Why do we do that? Here's why we do that. It's not because we believe God is good, though we may or may not. It's because we don't want people to think we've lost our faith. We don't want people to think we don't think God is good because then they're going to be disappointed in us and then we're going to have to explain ourselves. And I, and I, and I, but here's the deal. It's okay just to go, that's been a horrible week. I, I, I don't even know if God exists anymore. I'm, I'm pretty sure he does, but I feel like he doesn't because where is he? It's okay to just stop there, but we don't want to do that. Or on the other side of the coin, we secretly walk around and we're grateful that we're not as immature as everybody else. Come on now. You walk around, you're like, I'm just, I mean, bless, bless him, bless her. They're just so immature. But thankfully, I'm not, right? You see, secretly, we don't believe that we're in the same boat. So you you know what it produces? Here it is. It produces pretense or it produces judgment. But guess what? Good news. You ready? We're all in the same boat. Who's more messy? Who's more messy? You or me? You, obviously. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Neither. We're all equally messy. And so it gives us this beautiful space in which we can be authentic, doesn't it? I can be who I am with you because you already know that I am in the same boat as you and I already know that you are in the same boat as me. We are both deserving of the wrath of God and yet recipients of the grace of God. How awesome is that? And so we get to be authentic because we're all in the same boat. And if some other human can't tolerate my authenticity because they don't think we're the same, that's not my problem. So I can be me. That's freedom. That's beautiful. But that's not the best part of what a passage like this demonstrates. You know what the best part is? With that last little verse where he goes, there's a bunch of Greeks that have the law written on their heart. I'm going to tell you about them in like chapter four, okay? But they're awesome. So secretly what I'm telling you is even though it sounds like there's no way to be right before God, there is a way. I just haven't fully told you yet. That little secret, which we all know, turns out to be the incredible work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he died to take on the wrath of God and hand us his righteousness so that we wouldn't present ours at the table. We would present his at the table. That truth, that truth becomes evident in chapters one and two again for those of us that know that truth because it reminds us of this, ready? That we 
in of ourselves are in fact unrighteous and depraved. We forget that, you and I. And, and not, for, not for bad reasons. See, if you're around a gospel environment and you've been with Jesus a long time, what have you been telling yourself and what have people been telling you all along, or at least you should have, that you are now righteous in Christ? If you know Jesus, are you righteous or unrighteous? Righteous, that's right, you are. So I'll say it again, you're righteous. And for us human beings, in repetition, the extraordinary becomes ordinary, right? So here's what we do. I've told myself so often I'm righteous that I forget that without Christ, I was and am still unrighteous. The only reason I'm righteous is because I have Christ. And so this is a great reminder, isn't it, for all of us. Do you remember who you were before you were made righteous by the grace of God? You were the recipient of wrath, either an evildoer or a judge. I don't know which, but you were either moral high ground or you were evildoer. Welcome to humanity. And either way, you were a recipient of the wrath of God. But now you're not because you know the mercy of God in Christ. There, there's a story I, I heard uh, about a, a guy that climbs mountains. His, his name was Hans Peter. Now, a mountain for you Floridians is a piece of land that goes up, okay? Goes very high. No, no, not like the hill in Claremont. That is not actually a mountain. This one really, really goes really, really high. So high, in fact, that there's a point where the oxygen becomes low enough that even the trees don't go there. The trees don't grow up there. You can look at it in pictures on National Geographic. And so there are people that instead of climbing the Claremont Hills in 12 minutes, they climb these mountains over weeks of time. And Hans Peter is one of these guys that climbs mountains. And he tells a story about climbing a mountain with a group of people one time. Now, when you go up into these mountains, because they're high and there's lots of them in the Alps, storms will come very, very quickly without warning. You know, we see a storm in Cocoa Beach from here. We're like, oh, look, there's a storm coming tomorrow. But on the mountains, it's like you're up there and then that, the next hour you're in a giant storm. And these storms bring wrath with them. I mean, just massive lightning. But when you're high enough, there are no what? Trees. And so when you're on a mountain that's completely bare, that's really high in the middle of a horrid storm and there's lightning, who becomes the lightning rod? Well, I do. But then once I'm struck and I'm dead at six foot seven, then you're next, right? So we, we essentially all do, us humans. We are all that the lightning can strike. So what they do on these mountaintops is they put up lightning rods all over the mountaintops so that if you get caught in a storm, the trick as a mountain climber at that height is to go and find one of the lightning rods and get close to it but not touch it and then lay flat on the ground. And the lightning, when it strikes, will strike the lightning rod and it won't strike you. So Christians that climb these mountains, they've built these lightning rods that are in the form of a cross, kind of as a way of demonstrating the gospel. And one day, Hans Peters was on the mountain with a group of people, and he got caught in a giant storm. And they were scrambling to find a lightning rod, and they found a lightning rod in the shape of a cross. And Hans is a believer. He knows Jesus. And so he writes about this experience where they got down on the ground just close enough to the cross that it was their safety and just far enough that they didn't touch it and die, right? And they laid flat and he said, during the event, the lightning struck that cross over and over and over again until the storm dissipated. And he said he lay there and as he watched the lightning strike the cross over and over again instead of striking them, he knew that he was experiencing one of the greatest moments of clarity in the way that the gospel works. That we ought to be the recipients 
of the full wrath of God. But because Jesus Christ got up on that cross and became the lightning rod for all of the wrath of God, we can lay in the shadow of the cross and instead of having our works judged as they ought to be, the works that are judged on our behalf are his. And he has already received all the lightning that's out to get us. What this passage reminds you and I of, if we know Jesus is this, that you and I, regardless of our moral high ground or the lack thereof, are children of wrath, depraved in every way. And if we had to bring our works to the table, then we would be judged guilty and be the recipients of wrath. But because we don't bring our works to the table, by the grace of God and the work of Christ, we will not be recipients of wrath, but children of God. And that is our good news. And we ought to walk out of here going, thank you, God, that despite the fact that I fit the category of chapter one or chapter two, that yet I am found in you. And so I am safe from my own works that will let me down if ever judged rightly. Praise God for his goodness. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us, so good to us that you established for us a way by which we can have the law written on our hearts so that we might be righteous, not because our works are in of themselves righteous, but because you have written your righteousness onto us. God, as we continue to journey into the book of Romans and we discover the full implications of this theological wonder that though we are unrighteous, the recipients of wrath, that you have become our righteousness and we are the recipients of grace. As we discover that more and more, would you stir in us an awe and a wonder of what you have done, what you are doing and what you will do. And may we find ourselves not full of judgment, but full of humility, not full of wrath, but full of kindness, not full of contempt, but full of compassion for our brothers and sisters and for the world, because we recognize the kindness, the compassion, and the goodness that you have affected for us. May we find ourselves marked by humility and kindness and compassion, not because those things will make us righteous, but because you have made us righteous and those things are our expression of the clarity we have of your mercy and grace. We love you. We thank you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.